Good morning, it's good to see each of you today, and the singing part of our worship sounded excellent, and I'm very glad about that, and let's hope that the preaching part is excellent as well, uh, that God might be pleased to bless the word as it goes forth. And today we'll be looking at a very exciting story as we continue through the book of Daniel. We come today to Daniel chapter 6. Um, arguably probably the best known story in the book of Daniel. There are several ones, right, that we've looked at that, that have been familiar. Um, you know, Daniel's three friends in the furnace and Daniel chapter 3, very familiar. But, but we come today to that section of Daniel in the lion's den, a very familiar passage. And, and many of us heard that even as a child, even if you grew up in a Christian home or whatever, like you've heard something of that story growing up. And it is a great children's story, isn't it? I mean, some of the children that I talk to love this story, and it is a great story. But I want to submit to you that it's much more than a children's story. It's a story about the goodness of God to his people. It's a story about God's incredible sovereignty in the midst of his love for his people. It's a picture of how God supernaturally preserves his own no matter what we go through. And so it's a very, it's a glorious story. It's a, it's a deeply theological story, even though on the surface it's a, it's a pretty basic story. And it's an amazing thing to see how God unfolds this. Just to summarize, Daniel, of course, is marked with an incredible wisdom. He's pictured as a true Israelite who is faithful unto his God. He's been in Babylon for 65 to 70 years. Babylon has just fallen. Darius, the the Persian Empire, has just taken over. We saw that last week. And, And he's elevated once again to one of the top three in the land under King Darius. And as those top three, he was the favored one between those three. And it says that the king wanted to appoint him as number one man. There was 120 governors or satraps, as they're called, underneath these three that would keep that they were accountable to the three. Well, what happened was envy and jealousy set in on the other two against Daniel. And so they they get the king to sign a law. Whoever prays to anybody besides you should be thrown into a den of lions. Of course, the king, even though he likes Daniel a lot, he, he's bluffed and he doesn't see this coming. He signs it. And of course, Daniel, being the resolute man that he is, continues to worship God. He's entrapped and he's thrown into the lion's den. But of course, God sends his angel to shut the mouths of the lion. And of course, the accusers are then thrown into the pit and they're devoured before they even hit the ground, the text says. And so another picture, and then Darius, the, the king, that you know, probably not a conversion, but he declares that Daniel's God is the living God and the one true God who can deliver. It's interesting, each one at the end of these chapters of these narratives if we've, as we've gone through, the king makes a proclamation such as that. And so that's where we're at. And the passage is aimed towards the Israelites who are in exile. This is towards the very end of the exile. But they, being there for 60, 70 years, moving on to the second generation, were tempted to forget God's law and to forget God's standards that you're to worship God alone. The first commandment, right? Far too many Jews were getting too comfortable in Babylon. And and, and that applies to us too, because we can get comfortable living as exiles in the world here today. And we can get comfortable and kind of mold and, and conform into the world. 
and begin to live for ourselves, forgetting that God is in control, forgetting that His law is still in force, no matter what a Supreme Court or anybody else says. And so the passage is very practical for us as well. The title of the message is this, Providential Perseverance in the Pit. Providential Perseverance in the Pit. So let's read. I think I'm going to read it in sections under my three points. So I'm just going to read, first of all, verses 1 to 9. So follow along with me. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom that they may be in charge of the whole kingdom. And over them, three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them and that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit, and the king planned to appoint him over the kingdom. Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs, but they could not find I'm sorry, but they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful, and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these men said, We will not find any ground of accusation against Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows, King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom and prefects and satraps and high officials and governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked, and therefore King Darius signed the document, that is, the injunction. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active, and and we thank you for this narrative that we have before us, Lord. And we pray, O God, that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. We pray, O God, that you would send the Holy Spirit that we might have understanding of these things. And Lord, that we might leave as a changed people with a greater love and devotion to you, the one true God that lives forever and endures forever, the one who is able to rescue his own. Oh Lord, may your word pierce into each and every heart here like an arrow, piercing deeply and dead center into our heart to speak to the affairs of our lives. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've come to this final, uh, this is the final narrative. Remember, I told you when we introduced the book that Daniel can be split into two sections. You have six narratives at the front end of the book, and then you have four visions that take up the last six chapters of the book. We're going to enter those visions beginning next week. But these narratives have been very informative. And King Nebuchadnezzar was, was uh, uh, the, the, the king during the first four of those. And, and we see empty professions by him as it went along. But finally in the fourth chapter, something profound happens that after he's made into an animal and he's humbled to the dust, his pride had, had reached heaven and God said enough, that finally he confesses God and is saved. And then chapter 5 last week, 
week we see a new king on the scene, Belshazzar, a pagan king. He throws a drunken orgy fest and, and all of that. And then as the wine is flowing and as he becomes ridiculously intoxicated, he says, bring out the vessels from the temple of Jerusalem and let us drink from those profaning holy vessels. Suddenly a hand writes on the wall. And of course, it says of the king, what? He came unglued, his knees were shaking, his hips went out of joint, and he was terrified because he knew that this was not good. <laughs> this was not in the party plans. <laughs> this is not a party favor of any, any type in any way. And so finally, Daniel is, uh, the, the queen mother uh, reminds him about Daniel. Daniel's brought in. Daniel gives him a sermon about Nebuchadnezzar, which was his grandfather, how he humbled himself, but you, O king, resist God and will not humble yourself. Therefore, your kingdom, you've been weighed, you're found lacking, your kingdom will be divided and dissolved. And it was that very night that the Medes and the Persians outside diverted the river. Remember, the wall's impregnable, the city, you know, can't, and and there's a battle outside. Belshazzar knows this, but but what does he do? He just parties on, and so what happens? They march right in in knee-deep water, and they conquer Babylon. And so now we see Darius, of course, is, this is a Actually, not at the beginning, but from here on, the, the, the book is not in perfect chronological order. I'll bring that out uh, as we go through. But this is the kingdom now of the Medes and the Persians. Put it another way, remember in Daniel 2, the head of gold, the chest of silver, remember the iron and the bronze, and then the feet of clay, those various kingdoms, the head of gold is now gone. Babylon is destroyed. And so now it is the chest of silver. So today... As we continue to look at this, we see that God is pleased to use even the powers of wickedness to accomplish His greater purposes and to bring glory to Him. Daniel submits to his sovereign God. He upholds God's law. He does not um, waver to the right or to the left. He is dogmatic about continuing on glorifying God. And as I said, as this is the last narrative, it's sort of a climax uh, of, of these narratives that have been stacked up. And there's several parallels. You, you have to think of the parallels between Daniel 6 and Daniel 3. Darius signs the law in our chapter that you know, has to, they, they can't pray or devote anything except through him. Well, what did Nebuchadnezzar do? It had to be to the golden statue, right? And then also the story of Daniel... Uh, uh, Daniel, of course, is thrown into the lions and he's rescued by an angel. Well, Daniel's friends in chapter 3, when they're thrown in the furnace, what? There's a man like an angel there and they're unharmed. And so in both situations, they're unharmed. It's interesting to to think of uh, Joseph. We brought these parallels out before, but it reminds us of Joseph being thrown in the pit back in Genesis um, 39 to 41, somewhere around in there. So let's open up the text. We're going to look at verses 1 to 9 first. Daniel is provoked by wicked treachery. Secondly, Daniel persists in prayer. Thirdly, Daniel is protected from the lions. Very simple outline for us today. So first of all, let's, let's consider these first nine verses. Once again, uh, the other commissioners are jealous of Daniel's excellent spirits. Some of your texts say, Now these 120 satraps, these are the protectors of the kingdom. These are the governors stationed throughout the kingdom that would give an account to the three presidents or commissioners, depending on your translation, those who are in authority, the top three. 
And Daniel had served the empire well. And of course, we see this again and again. He's promoted, he's promoted often at the end of those chapters that we've already studied. And so what happens when you do a good job and an exceptional good job and it's being noticed? Envy can come, right, by the others looking on. And, 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 it's, and that's exactly what happened by doing a good job. Daniel was making enemies with those around him. Not that that should detour what he does, but Daniel learned how to live as an alien in this world. He knew how to learn as a pilgrim in a pilgrim land. And, 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 and that's exactly how he lived. It's not that he withdrew and he kept barking and de- demeaning. No, he, he, he was, a, he was a, a, how do we say it, as Jesus said, to be in the world but not of the world. Daniel was living in his culture, but he did not become a part of his culture so much that he would blend right in. Hopefully that makes some sense. Of course, it says the king planned to promote him over the whole kingdom. And so word of this probably got out. And so these other commissioners are conspiring. We've got to bring this man down. This is not going to be good for us. And so promotion for Daniel would mean demotion for the other leaders. So driven by envy, they seek to find an accusation. They're searching high and low. There's got to be something dirty on this guy. Nobody's this good. <laughs> Nobody's like Daniel. You know, the, the, there's nothing that can be found. And sure enough, they could not find anything. It's kind of like when the election season comes up. You know, you've got the candidates kind of right now, they're kind of throwing their hats in the ring for next year. But what's going to happen with the newer candidates is that the media and, and the um, others who are running against them begin to dig to find the skeletons in the closet. There's got to be something dirty on this guy. Oh, look, when he was 17, this happened, you know, and that kind of stuff. Well, that's exactly what these conspirators tried to do, but they could not find anything on Daniel. Though corruption was common in the Babylonian and the Persian Empire, Daniel had kept himself free from that. Nothing could be found, but these men would not give up. Their envy drove them to keep finding and looking. And so what happened is they get creative. We've got to make a clash between, we know Daniel will not compromise his God and his law, so we've got to pass a law that clashes with that so we can get him in trouble, so we can entrap him. And that's exactly what they did. They persuade the king to make a law. The penalty is not a fine. It's not a suspension. It's not a demotion. It is what? Thrown in the lion's den. Sounds rather extreme, but that was actually a pretty common way of execution in those days in the Persian Empire. Uh, You think about it, that's an an inexpensive way to feed the lions as well, as the enemies would just be thrown in there. So of course, verse 8, and you've heard this, uh, if you think of the book of Esther, that the law according to the Medes and the Persians cannot be changed. That language is here uh, mentioned twice in our text. And so if the king makes this law... Verse 8, so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. And so the king passes this law. Of course, Daniel does not become uh, paranoid. He is calm, cool, and collected as he hears of this going on. Though danger loomed, he had a remarkable peace about him. So, Daniel, provoked by wicked treachery, but yet nothing could be found. Secondly, Daniel persisted in prayer and obedience. Verses 10 to 18, let's read that. Now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now 
in the, his roof chamber, he had windows open towards Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication to his God. Then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. Did you not sign an injunction that any man that makes petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days is to be cast in the lion's den? The king replied, the statement is true according to the law, the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Then they answered and they spoke before the king, Daniel, who is one of, your, one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you have signed, but keeps making petition three times a day. Then, as soon as the king heard the statement, he was deeply distressed and he set his mind on delivering Daniel. And even until sunset, he kept exerting himself to rescue him. But these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Recognize, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed. Then the king gave orders, and Daniel was brought and cast into the lion's den. And the king spoke and said to Daniel, Your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles, so that nothing would be changed in regard to Daniel. Then the king went off to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no entertainment was brought before him, and his sleep fled from him. Here we see Daniel as a man, again, he was a teenager when he was brought in, Uh, When Jerusalem fell, he's probably in his 80s. And he's a man that that has a sense of conviction. We see back in chapter 1 and verse 8, remember that he would not defile himself with the king's food. He's a man of principle. And so that continues on here. He knows that the injunction is signed. He knows that the penalty is death and to be thrown into the, the, the lion's den. But what does he do? He says, along with what Peter would say later, as we read, we must obey God rather than man. At the end of the day, it's not about trying to figure out in your finite mind, well, God would never put me in a situation like this. Maybe I'll compromise a little bit here, and then God will reward me for that. No, Daniel continues on just as he had done prostrating himself before a holy God towards Jerusalem, the holy city, three times a day in his upper room. And notice the text, what it says. What was the content of his prayer? Oh God, you've left me here for 70 years and this has been so painful. And by the way, I've got aches and pains. And by the way, these guys don't like me. And can't you just deliver? No, what does it say? giving thanks before his God, as he had done previously. Giving praise and adoration to God for who he is. Recognizing that he's a covenant God that does not forsake his own. The psalmist says, O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. You might think of what Paul has written in Philippians, to be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication, With thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. And the sad reality, brethren, for you and for me, 
is that we often forget thanksgiving in our prayers. But thanksgiving helps us to have a right perspective of what God is doing in our lives. It helps us to, to understand things more fully when we begin to see God is alive, He is working, He is moving, and He really is concerned for every hair on my head when you begin to catalog how God has worked in your life. Our prayers, sadly, are marked too much by complaining and grumbling and not the giving of thanks. And one thing you can do this coming week is just examine yourself and and catalog your prayers. First of all, that you do pray. We're assuming that. But when you pray, note how much time you're spending in praise and adoration, how much time you're giving in thanksgiving, and then confession of sin, and then, of course, supplication. Those should be balanced out somewhat. And and another nuance here that that is easy to miss, and I don't want you to miss it, it says that, what what did he do? He, He was bowing down towards Jerusalem. Now, why in the world would he do that? I mean, Muslims pray in a certain direction, right? I mean, is there something with that? Remember when Solomon dedicated the temple that had been destroyed by the Babylonians 70 years prior. That temple that, well, that Solomon was dedicated in 1 Kings chapter 8, at the, that beautiful prayer, read that. It's very devotionally insightful and packed. But towards the end of that prayer, Solomon uh, anticipates a time when God's people would rebel and that God would have to spank them and send them away into exile. And I'm going to, I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 46. Again, the whole chapter is, is um, devotionally beneficial, but I want you to see here how he anticipates this time. In verse 46, when they sin against you, for there is no man who does not sin, and you are angry with them and deliver them to an enemy so that they take them away captive to the land of an enemy far off or near, if they take thought of the land which they have been taken captive, repent and make supplication to you in the land and those who have been taken captive, saying, We have sinned and committed iniquity, and we have acted wickedly. If they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who have taken them captive and pray to you toward their land, which you have given to their fathers, and the city which you have chosen, and the house which I have built for your name, then hear their prayer and their supplication in heaven, from your dwelling place and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you in all their transgressions which they have transgressed against you and make them objects of compassion before those who have taken them captive. What a glorious prayer. You can see here that if they repent, they're, they're taken to a foreign land and, and when they confess and they humble themselves and, and they pray towards you. And, and we're going to see Daniel's beautiful prayer in Daniel chapter 9 in, in a few weeks here. But when that happens, hear from heaven. And of course, God does. Well, again, Daniel continues with his normal routine. The, the men 
find him making petition. They go to the king. They almost trick the king by saying, did you not sign this that says this, 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 and gets the king to affirm, that's what I said, that's right, that's the law. And then, oh, by the way, Daniel, you know, the one that you like so much, he's not obeying that. And that's why the text says in verse 14, the king heard the statement and he was deeply distressed. By the way, King Darius, is a, an array of emotions are shown in him. He's, he's depressed and distressed. He, in verse 20, we'll see him crying out anxiously. And, and at the end, we see that he's very glad when he sees that Daniel is fine. But here in verse 14, he is very distressed. And notice it says, he set his mind on delivering Daniel. Even until sunset, he kept exerting himself to rescue him. So you can picture the king, and his, his, the king, his hands are tied by himself, right? Because he's the one that made the injunction. And so he's the one that's limited his own, you know, that he can't do anything. And, and so finally, he says, may your God deliver you. And recognizing that his God is a good God. Well, there's an application to us. Daniel didn't deserve to be thrown in the lion's den, did he? No? I mean, they couldn't even find one accusation against him. He's tricked and duped and thrown in there. But the same is true for us. God has not promised perfect comfort for us. The health and wealth gospel that God wants you to be happy and wealthy and all of that kind of stuff all the time is a lie. We've been nowhere promised that we're going to have a smooth, trouble-free life in this life. In fact, God is determined about sanctifying you and sanding off the rough edges and conforming you into the image of Christ. And that does not come, brethren, when everything's going good. When the wind is at your back and you don't even stub your toe ever and just everything's smooth sailing, you know what happens? You begin to forget God. And you find that, hey, I'm going pretty good on my own. I don't, what's the big urgency here? That's why God brings trials to humble us, to get us to see the way things really are. And furthermore, He uses these to sanctify us, to, to grow us in our holiness, that we might be more like Him. Peter, writing to exiles as well in the New Testament in chapter 1, he says that, so the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory. So he's explaining why trials come. Well, there's a bit of an irony here. If you look at verse 18, the king went off to his palace that night. What? Look at the text, verse 18. This is real important. He's fasting, and no entertainment was brought in before him, and his sleep fled before him. This is what you call a sleepless night. A night where the dancers aren't coming in, or maybe for your modern, flipping on your cable news or whatever, watching a movie. So no entertainment, no food, and I can't sleep. That's the situation uh, for King Darius. Now Daniel, as we'll see in a moment, it's completely the opposite. Daniel had spent a far more comfortable night surrounded by the warmth of the lions and the soft fur than King Darius did in his royal luxury in the palace. Isn't that amazing to think about that? 
That's just an irony there, the difference in their sleep. And one obvious application, brethren, is that true peace does not come about about your possessions and your position as much as walking in the will of God. Right? Isaiah 26 and verse 3, he promises perfect peace. Daniel spends the night in the den of lions, and the king goes back to his cushy bed and could not sleep. And then furthermore, as we'll see from Daniel's confession here, uh, he says, the Lord sent his angel to shut the mouths. And, and there's an indication that the angel was there for a long time, and you can almost picture the resting back, reclining on a lion, and conversing with this, this angel about all the glories of heaven. But you know, we don't know, we're not told that, but the angel's there for an extended period of time. So brothers and sisters, again, we have no promise that God will always deliver us out of our trials. Paul writes in 2 Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, what? Might be persecuted? Will be persecuted. When you set your mind to walk in obedience to God and to seek to glorify Him in all things, don't expect the world to never question that or to come against that. Now for us, persecution comes in various ways, and I believe in our lifetime we're going to see that changing for even us in Southern California. But verbal slander, that's common. Being mocked in the workplace, in school, whatever, and neighbors. Um, Perhaps some type of physical abuse. Mistreatment from government officials who are supposed to protect its citizens, but we see that that's not always the case as well either. Um... Seeing someone that you love being hurt in some way, you must remember that this world is not our home. We, there is difficulties and sufferings and trials in this life, but we are just a passing through. We're heading to heaven, the celestial city, the place of peace, the place of comfort, the place where we will see Christ face to face. So we've seen Daniel provoked, we've seen him persisting in prayer, and now we see him protected. Verse 19, follow with me. Then the king arose at dawn, at the break of day, and went in haste to the lion's den. And when he had come near to the den, <clears throat> and when he had come near the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke and said to Daniel, "Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions?" Then Daniel spoke to the king, "O king, live forever." My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me insomuch as I was found innocent before him, and also toward you, O king, I have committed no crime. Then the king was very pleased and gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no injury whatsoever was found on him because he had trusted in his God." The king then gave orders, and they brought those men who had maliciously accused Daniel, and they cast them, and notice, their children and their wives into the lion's den, and they did not reach the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all of their bones. And Darius the king wrote to all the peoples and nations of men of every language who were living in all the land, may your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and enduring forever. 
And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed, and his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions? So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So notice the text here in verse 19 to 20. It dawned the next day, very early the next day. He, he runs to go check on Daniel. Consider the thoughts rushing through his mind, not being able to sleep all night, assuming almost for sure Daniel is crushed and there's fresh blood all over the place. And by the way, that was probably not a very pleasant place to be with you know, the remnants of bones decaying and, and flesh and a very bloody place in the, in the den of the lions. But So he's assuming that. And so these thoughts are rushing through his head. Notice the text here. It says that he cried out with a troubled voice, uh, Daniel, servant of the living God. And it's almost as though he's yelling before he even gets to the stone that was put over the top of the den. And of course, Daniel declares, my God sent his angel to shut the mouths of your lions. My God has done this for me. And furthermore, he says, he has not harmed me. Notice he says, because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king. So, of course, the enemies have found no fault with Daniel when they were looking earlier in the chapter. And now we have before us uh, uh, God himself declaring that he is innocent. So how was Daniel saved? First, it was by faith. Look at the text here. The end of verse 23 because he had trusted in his God. In fact, Hebrews chapter 11, we have the beautiful hall of faith there. And towards the end, it says, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, and quenched the power of fire. We quoted this very verse three weeks ago. We were in Daniel 3 when they were untouched by the fire. And here, the mouth of the lions are shut. But secondly, in verse 22, God sent an angel to intervene. God sent his angel to shut the mouths of the lion. As I said, we will be persecuted and we need to be willing to die if that is God's will for us. Um, Not that we don't fight if we can or, or whatever, but Uh, We have no guarantee of living 80, 90 years as Daniel did. Richard Baxter, one of the Puritans, says, Lord, it belongs not to my care whether I live or die. To love and to serve thee is my share, and this thy grace must give. And so what he's saying here is it's, it's not for me to determine when I'm going to live or die, but for me what I need to focus on is living for you today and being faithful to you and trusting that you will provide your grace. Well, it's an interesting thing here. Notice the text doesn't say that the lions were defanged, that all the teeth were pulled out, and therefore they could, you know, it was just they tried to gum them, but that didn't work. Uh, That's not the case, right? No, it's just their mouths were shut. And then we see in verse 24, the king gave orders and brought those men who maliciously accused him and cast them and notice their children and their wives into the lion's den, and they are devoured. 
These lions, though they were on a temporal fast, ironically along with the king, I was almost going to do that as my title, the fasting lions and the king, <laughs> but uh, it's kind of a side thing. But, uh, you know, th- th- these lions are hungry, and it's obvious if they're all consumed before they even get to the bottom. So it just magnifies the miracle that took place here. Well, in verse 25, we have this glorious confession, and I'm just going to read the poetic part again, where he declares, For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. His dominion will be forever. He delivers and he rescues. He performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lion's den? So the king writes another decree, verse 26, I will make a decree in the kingdom. So he, you know, you, you can't overturn uh, one of the laws of the law, but you can actually write a one that, that would counter that. And so that's what he does. And this glorious profession here of God, that he is a living God, that he can deliver us from that final enemy, death. And that's good news for us. Daniel's entire life, as far as we know, was spent in exile. And his experience in the lion's den is, a, is a, like a, a picture of his whole life spent in the pit of exile. His life in exile was not easy, and it certainly never became his home. He knew that he's, he had that pilgrim mentality. As it says in Hebrews 13, um, <clears throat> We do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Now, it's interesting, the last verse, I'm just going to make a comment on this, and we're going to go to the application. So then Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Now, we read those verses in uh, Isaiah 45. <clears throat> you also see it in the opening verses of Ezra chapter 1 when it's Cyrus, <clears throat> excuse me, that would be raised up as we read in Isaiah. And of course, that was like over 100 years ago before. Uh, you will not know, you do not know me, but I will raise you up and I will use you. And so Cyrus is now on the scene, the Persian, and he is the one that allows them to go back, Ezra and Nehemiah, to rebuild uh, the walls and to rebuild the temple. And so um, some believe, and I tend to lean this way, it's a, when it says the reign of Darius and in the in the reign of Cyrus the Persian, that those are one and the same. Um, many believe that Darius was a title, sort of like king or queen or something like that. The king, well, it was Darius, and this is the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Because it is right here at this time when they begin to, when the first wave goes back to Jerusalem. Well, some application for us. Paul says it well in Romans 8.31. If God is for us who can be against us if god is for us who can be against us if you know you're walking in the will of god and you know you're you're walking amongst his pleasure who can be against us and and listen brethren daniel 6 is not about you leaving saying i want to be more faithful in my prayer life like daniel and i want to be able to stand firm like daniel those are good things but that's not the only takeaway It's a preview of how all true Christians will be found innocent in that day because of the blood of Christ imputed to our account. 
we stand before him blameless and innocent, not because we've lived a perfect life, not because one accusation can't be given to us. In fact, the complete opposite is true. We can dig up dirty laundry on each one of you here and myself as well. We've not lived the perfect life, but Christ has, and he took God's just judgment against sin on the cross. He was dead, he was buried, and he rose from the dead victoriously, and that is good news for us. Ian Duguid brings out the idea that, that we are not superhumans who never stumble, but we're everyday sinners who in reality cave in to the pressures of the world from time to time. And if you're pretending that you don't, you're lying to yourself. But the beautiful thing is that the church of Christ is made up of sinners who are wounded and know that they're not perfect and know that they need Christ. And God smiles upon the church because this is Christ's church. We are His bride. Those of us who are born again believers who are in Christ, we are the bride of Christ. And He looks on us just as a, a groom would His bride. Just as Josh will next Saturday Look at Christy walk down the aisle. You know, that's a look of love, and I love her. And that's the way Christ looks at his church because of his perfect blood being applied. Now, the flip side is this is it just like the unbelievers who schemed against Daniel, who were envious and sought the plot and all of that, and ultimately were destroyed, right, in the, in the, the lion's den? It's a picture of the coming judgment. In fact, Scripture gives several examples of little previews of that great and final judgment of which Christ talked about so much. You have Sodom and Gomorrah. You're 19 chapters into the Bible and early in Genesis, and you see a picture of the judgment that is to come. You have these other examples, such as the walls of Jericho falling, or even Babylon last week we saw invaded, and even Jerusalem when it's destroyed, and in AD 70 when it's destroyed again. Well, Second Peter 3, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be, be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Well, just a couple of observations as we conclude today. First of all, Daniel is a type of Christ. I hope that's really obvious, or it should be, or it will be in a moment. First of all, we should ask, what is a type? Typology results from doing biblical exegesis, comparing the Old Testament to the New Testament, and sort of putting those up side by side, and seeing how the Old Testament is viewed as, as providing types of Christ, or there's other types too, but, but as far as Christ goes, who is the anti-type, who is the fulfillment for example, Paul tells us very clearly in Romans chapter 5, where he says, Adam was a type of him who was to come. Type is the word tupos, which is the word imprint, like leaving a stamp on a wax seal or something like that. Or even, I believe, tupos is the words that's used for the imprint on Jesus' hands after he's risen from the dead uh, to doubting Thomas. And so this type, it's a shadow, it's a type. And, and, and so what Paul is saying is, is where Adam has failed in the garden, Christ has succeeded. He's a type of Christ. He's the second Adam. 
Furthermore, Christ himself, we saw last year when we were studying Jonah, that Christ says it a couple different times, but Jonah is a type of Christ. Just as he's thrown overboard and in the, the belly of the sea monster for three days and three nights, so too the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. So Scripture is filled with these types. Well, Daniel is also a type. There's a, there's a few helpful things that uh, one of the commentators brought out here. Um, Daniel 6.6, 6, the satraps conspire against Daniel and bring these charges. Well, 2, Matthew 26, verse 3, the chief priests and the elders conspire to arrest Jesus. Of course, the conspirators try to find accusations against Daniel because they can't find any, so they're trying to find. Well, so too, the whole council was looking for testimony to be given against Christ so that he might be put to death. And Daniel uh, Daniel's found guilty of the law of the Medes and the Persians. What Jesus is said is found guilty of the law of the Jews. Daniel trusted his God. And so to Christ, you hear the cries in the Garden of Gethsemane, trusting in his God. If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Daniel is thrown down into the pit. Christ is thrown down into the grave. Christ is put in the tomb and there is a stone put in front of it and it is sealed. And so too with Daniel, there's a stone put on top and it's sealed with the signet rings. All kinds of shadows that point along these lines. Make no mistake about it though, Jesus is the greater Daniel. Jesus is the Christ. Well, there's also some contrast. Daniel was found blameless. Jesus is what? Sinless. Daniel was threatened with death and did not die. Christ actually did die. And Daniel rose from the grave, uh, from the den, only to die again. And of course, Jesus rose and lives forever. Well, the question for you today, since Christ is the one who is reigning and ruling, since Christ is the one that is exalted at the right hand of God, all judgment has been given to the Son, the Father says, What will you do with Christ? Will you bow your knee and humbly confess that He is indeed King Jesus, that He is indeed Lord, that He is indeed worthy of all of your worship? The Bible says in Philippians 2 that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. That happens in this life through repentance and faith and embracing Christ, or it happens in the judgment when you are forced to confess those things and forced to bow as you are thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus spoke more about hell than anything else, and so turn from your sin and run to Jesus while you still have breath in this life and look to Him. And then finally, just a word for weary Christians who feel like they're beat up by the world, flesh, and the devil. Your salvation does not rest upon how well your life parallels that of Daniel that we've just studied. Isn't that good news? (laughs) I'm glad. (laughs) But it rests on the perfect obedience of Christ and what He's accomplished for His Father. He never broke God's law. He always did the right thing. That's what your salvation rests on. That is the ground of our justification, His passive and active obedience on our behalf. Brethren, if God is for you, who can be against us? We can trust in the living God to deliver us 
from that final enemy death. Just as He raised Daniel from the lion's den and raised Christ from the grave, He will raise you too to everlasting paradise one day where there will be no more tears, a place of infinite joy. As Paul says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You're not strong enough to live like a Daniel. You can't dare to be a Daniel. You can dare to be a Daniel and you're going to fail. You need to keep your eyes on Christ, the one who has fulfilled it all, and live that perfect life for you. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you, Lord, for just practical lessons from this uh, wonderful book of Daniel and even the section we looked at today. Lord, we thank you for your marvelous grace of which we sung about earlier. And Lord, we do want to be those that fix our eyes on Christ as we walk through this pilgrimage, as we live as exiles in this land. Lord, we pray that you would help us in that regard. Oh Lord, give us a, a holy resolve and a, a to seek to do those things that please you and to glorify you. We want to pray more. We want to have more communion with you. We want to love Christ more. We want to be able to stand firm and to speak the truth in love. And so Lord, empower us by your Spirit with these things. But Lord, all the while, may we keep an eye on Christ who has done these things perfectly to be a motivation and an encouragement to be a balancing agent when the devil seeks to whisper lies that we know that our justification rests on the finished work of Christ in whose name we pray, amen.